This is Shaco Art Speak. Welcome to Shaco Art Speak. This is Rethink um, Suffering, and we're gonna, uh, and also we might get into some discussions around the ultimate no-no, which is talking about death. What? Um, and even how it's been handled in the arts. We, we may have a couple of paintings to look at. Yeah, um, it's a rarely mentioned topic in art. Yeah. It's almost never been addressed before, <laughs> and today we're going to totally go for it. We're going to go for it. We're going to get the frogs brother. out here. Oh, brother. <laughs> Somewhere between Alex Jones and, and um, uh, Hulk Hogan. I'll tell you what. <laughs> yeah. Here's what we're going to do. i got 10 papers here we're going to read over right now. Um, yeah, brother. <laughs> <laughs> like, hey, Alex. <laughs> like. Oh, man. Yeah, we got we to gotta set the tone right. Yeah, it can't, always can't starts. Jump two feet into it always starts completely in a misleading way to how serious the conversation is going to get. Yeah, I want to. I want to the old wanna, bait and switch. I want to do a switch. rough, uh, rough quote of Miguel Carter Fisher on the last episode and say, "I'm pretty sure nobody started their 101st podcast this way." Yeah, so we're going to keep it. We're going to keep that. <laughs> keep it consistent. Yeah, so if you were listening in episode 100, this is the second part to that, boom, and so boom. we're you know part it's episode two, part two. Oh, brother! And I really want to talk like a wrestler, and part of that's because we just consumed. Uh, a, we, like a two foot. Yeah, it was a, a two foot dude. A we had a wrestling f- match right here at this table. Yeah, it was maybe even over a two foot. Um, I like to hyperbolize. I want to make it, it, it bigger. It was a foot. three foot, at least sub- four feet. It weighed yeah. about five pounds. Cheese Philly cheesesteak sandwich. Where yeah. the the person that makes these goes to Philly to get the stuff to bring yes. back to Richmond. If you are anywhere within driving distance of Richmond. Go to straight out of Philly. Straight out of Philly. Also, the dude drives from Richmond to Philadelphia, so driving distance to Richmond is a very vague sort of definition. Four to seven hours. Yeah, four to seven hours from Richmond. Stop by. It's legit. So it's legit. good. Great spot. My stomach is burning. My throat is burning. My acid reflex is burning. <laughs> um, I'm just a hunk of, this hunk podcast of burning is, love. This is pre- preeminent for the death yeah. talk right now. <laughs> it is. Yeah, I'm going to be burping up cheesesteak for the next two nights. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sorry, Laura. All, all I can say is y'all are so welcome. Yeah. Thank you, Gareth. You're thank welcome. you. Thank You're you, Dr. Snacksmill. Uh, thank you. Listen, so ladies and gentlemen, if, uh, <laughs> Dr. Snacksmill delivers again. If there's anything uh, that I'm really good at, it is uh, championing my favorite restaurants. I can, I actually contribute my weight gain to teaching at home and being really close friends to Gareth Blackwell. Hey, hey, I, I give the raw materials. You do what you want with them. Yeah. <laughs> but he doesn't just give the raw materials. He talks you through it. Yeah. Like, Here's what it is. There's a way to this. Yeah. I'll tell you, the, in, the, in the deep south, there are two things that we're about. We love good stories and we love good food. Yep. And those two things often go together. Yeah. And it gets really hot. So sometimes you just got to sit around for the whole day and just tell good stories and eat good food. Yeah. I, I could see that. Yeah. Except for I don't gain weight from good stories. Um, it keeps your mind off of it. <laughs> That's right. So we're back with Miguel Carter Fisher and Ian C.S. Yes, we are. Two fantastic painters. Yes. Very different artists from each other mm-hmm. in many ways. But I think there's an overlap of intangibles and uh, dedication. And, um, you know, I think a lot of the things that are actually the hallmark of, of, of makers that are really making. There's yeah. a lot of kinship actually in the room. I was going to say, I think um, outside of the arts, it's really easy to just kind of boil everything down to like aesthetic, like sort of mm-hmm. buckets. And yeah. Say, you but, look like this person or don't look like this yeah. person. Um, but if you're like in the space, there's this, uh, I don't want to use two weighted language, but there's like, you know, there's people that you would put in a category of like really good makers. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah I yeah. think there's a, there's and a you'll find there's a lot of overlap there and even subject matter. And so Miguel, you had a, we were off air for a second. You had, you were curious about something pertaining to Ian's work. You want to, 
Yeah. Um, so, Ian, um, you've talked a little bit about this with me in the past, uh, about the show you had here at Shaco Art Space, um, and, you know, kind of using the classical figures mm -hmm. and this sort of, uh, I think you described it as like the fracturing of something beautiful and it coming out of the Wabi end of, of a Kintsugi. Kintsugi. Yeah. yeah. Like coming out of the end of a, a relationship that you could be in, and um, if you're comfortable talking about it, I, I want to hear more about where that body of work came from, and I guess more specifics on, I guess what the trauma or wound or however you want to describe it that was at like the root of you know that that work germinating. That's a really good question. Uh, I love that. So the work initially, it probably comes, I mean, you could go as far back as you possibly imagine. Uh, I think the only thing that makes sense or people that I've ever even resonated with on a human to human level, it's always been somebody and even not knowing up front, I think you can just see the depth like if somebody has been gone through something that really challenged who they are and what they value, I think those things resonate with people who have also been through traumatic events. Like, I mean, my parents divorced when I was two years old. Um, I had, I traveled all around the country. It was Chicago. It was New York for a while. My mom actually worked at the Martin agency in Richmond. That was my first dose of Richmond before I even knew, you know, what's what before Endeavor way before Endeavor. And uh, I think just seeing, I had, there's a story that my mom always tells me that when it was close to the end of her marriage when I was two years old, uh, that my dad had come over and she was sitting in the kitchen and I was sitting there sort of just waiting for whatever was going to happen. And it was essentially the discussion about how things were going to end. And, uh, and my mom was like, okay, Ian, go in the other room. Uh, mom and dad are going to talk now. And I was like, okay. So I, as I'm walking away, she, she says it like she can see it in her mind every time that I, I get to the doorway to leave the room and I turn around and put my hands on my hips and I say, don't you two fight now. And my mom like instantly in that moment, just, just bawling tears. It's just like, holy shit, like I can't do this anymore. Uh, and this is what it's, it's like my two year old is aware of the situation. And so I think in some sense that like the battle, the, the uh, brokenness that came from that, that ended up bringing my mom to Richmond where she met my stepdad. And I consider him my guardian angel, uh, Tom Harrison. Shout out. And uh, shout, out Tom. shout out to nobody Tom is, always. Nobody is more wonderfully colorblind. He and is. I, I know. And I love when he wore those colorblind correction glasses. And oh he my was God. like, you mean that's not gray? Yeah. <laughs> and he had been given, he'd been given yeah. Ian crap for years for certain colors. Yep. And it was like, and then he, he just couldn't it see it for the him. first time. Yep. Anyways, that's it. Oh yeah. He put, we got those it. for his Tom. birthday and he like, same thing, just started like pouring tears. Like, yeah, oh, I beautiful. had no idea what I wasn't seeing. Um, yeah. And so I, I think in that brokenness to meet someone who, I mean, they're still very happily married. It's been 23 years now. And uh, to see them still happily in love, I mean, that there's such a healing quality of that. And so in my own right of, you know, my own life of losing friends, seeing relationships and uh, I mean, more specifically, the work, the Greco-Roman work was always something I wanted to do. I was essentially avoiding 
my weak point, and that was doing any sort of portraiture. I would always, my characters or everything that I was painting back in the day, never had a face or it had something in front of its face or it was monsters. And there's a couple of pieces I'd done in school where I attempted to do portraiture. It didn't turn out very well, needless to say. And in the time of, I had a relationship of someone that I thought I was going to be with for a very long time. That was back in, must've been 2017. And that relationship came to an end and I sort of, I just had to take a step back and that's when Endeavor was still going on and I could sort of bury myself in the work of, <clears throat> of doing shows, but I much more so wanted to actually take the moment to use the sort of raw state of just feeling like that which is familiar or this place that I could go to through two people being together, you sort of get this, this key in this lock and only you two can go to that place. And then when that no longer exists, I think that's what forces you to sort of find new ground. And in that, I dove into work as much as possible, and I was like, it's finally time to learn portraiture. I just started doing it, and I just so happened to have a couple of these panels sitting around two by one foot, nice 3.5 inch depth to it, and uh, did these two pieces, and that was for a December show. And I said, if these two pieces sell that night, I will quit my job tomorrow and start doing this full time. And that night, those two pieces sold after I'd told them much what sounds like this story <laughs> and uh they they loved the work and from there i was like i think there's really something about this work and those faces were very fractured they're they're literally broken apart and fit together like puzzle pieces and in researching that and diving into it i mean ryan came along at a certain point and he's like i think you have like a full show here and him saying that, you know, I'm geeking out because I used to jokingly say to Ryan, like, hey, yeah, so when's my show in Shaco Art Space? And he would laugh with a big old belly laugh. Oh, oh silly boy. What are you thinking? <laughs> uh, and then for that to sort of be a possibility, uh, that gave me enough to, to dive into it. And then since then, I've incorporated the ideas of wabi-sabi and kintsugi. And they're Japanese philosophies, but uh, kintsugi specifically being about repairing broken vases they when they fracture they bring them to a kintsugi artist and they fuse it with gold as to emphasize the crack instead of to cover up that it ever been broken and much of the philosophy is that that which is broken is beautiful and through its brokenness to emphasize and actually make it stronger i think that probably applies to people who have had real experiences in this life way more than it doesn't so needless to say that's sort of what i was thinking well, I love how you're you're reaching to other art traditions and philosophical traditions and even other cultures um, that are geographically distant from mm -hmm. where we are in the world and relating them back to your own personal experience with, um, you know, with relationships and with family. And I think you know, kind of, I guess, speaking back to the last episode, that's sort of what, that's the kind of thing I, I think I was trying to get at about, like, what art can do that we forget mm. it can do. Like, we, you know, when the when the dialogues we have with each other stay, always has to be in this very um, kind of externalized kind of socio-political sphere, you know, we, we, we sort of forget that there's there's other aspects of the human condition that, you know, these uh, traditions and these outlooks and uh, 
can relate to. Um, so yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I'm trying, I hope I'm not reaching too far and there's the whole, you know, cultural appropriation thing that can be thrown any which way. But I think the more I look at culture, the more I study mythology, I see more in common with people across the the entire world than I don't. I mean, I love seeing like those ancient history sort of, uh, I don't want to say like conspiracy boards, but there's there's a big uh, lost civilization thrust that's going on throughout history. I think it's being spearheaded by people like Graham Hancock or Randall Carlson. And they're basically connecting that there was a global civilization like 13,000 years ago. And they use imagery such as dragons. Dragons are ubiquitous in imagery across the world. Um, I hope I'm not going off too much of a tangent. But uh, even pyramids themselves and in their designs, their architecture and their mythos, I mean, even the shared common story of a great flood is throughout. So, which is just to say, I think people have probably more in common than they don't. And it's, it's all to emphasize, I mean, exactly what you're saying, to find depth in the work through finding depth in ourselves and finding about how these truths shared amongst a global population go not only uh, deep through our lifetimes, but throughout civilizations throughout history so finding meaning in suffering in death and uh any difficulty throughout your life i mean i think that's way more powerful than just being like i'm broken or i give up or life ain't worth doing yeah and it's funny you bring up like the um because i've watched all the joe rogan interviews with graham (laughs) hancock and (laughs) stuff like that and uh i don't know i mean i'm not an expert in that field so I, I suspend my judgment because frankly I just don't know enough about it but one thing I find interesting with like Graham Hancock is I just call him Graham Cock Graham Cock uh, interesting <laughs> thing about Graham Cock is that if we are if there was this like global civilization and that's discovered to be true that would be incredible mm-hmm. but at the same time what is also incredible is if these really are just a bunch of disparate, separate civilizations that never contacted each other, but yet they're still attracted to so many right. of the same forms, the same patterns, the same iconography, that that means there's something even... I actually find that even more uh, life-affirming and exciting mm-hmm. than the idea of a global civilization is this idea that these people who are geographically so isolated from each other would still have this common uh common architectural language common visual language because it it shows that there is a universality to the human condition that i think we like to kind of poo-poo and dismiss in today's uh culture um yeah. Yeah, I think there's I mean, I think there's been a huge focus lately on how everyone is so different from everyone else, how like you're specifically unique or your identifying factors or um have such a specificity to them that we can't actually have spaces where we connect. We can't even do this. So the the idea of like uh bringing something together stronger doesn't really enter like I think the cultural conversation a lot. It's very much like how can we separate to be stronger? Um, and I think of Robert Frost's poem, The Mending Wall, and it talks about these two farmers who like have all this land, but really, to Richmond. they don't really live near each other. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> Especially with you here, Ian. Yeah. Um, but the, uh, 
the idea is like every year they have to come together and rebuild this wall that's between their two fields and over it they're they're sharing this common task together building this thing a tangible designed object and in it they kind of have a conversation they talk and it says that actually uh i think one of the lines that one farmer says to the other is that uh um fences make good neighbors because it's the place where you come together it's it's not necessarily it's, it's not the a liminal place yeah it's, it's the space where it's not it's not yours it's not theirs but it's a place of common overlap uh of common care of connection um a lot of those things i think we we kind of fail to do that and we don't think about it mm-hmm. so instead of it coming from a us to me mm. it's kind of a me to i <laughs> you know it it doesn't really it doesn't flow uh, but then we look for we look for us oh gosh i gotta be really careful we look for mirrored affirmation and so we talk about difference as a idea provided everybody uh reflects the same idea of difference which then becomes uniformity and um not necessarily unity Um, well it gets back to that point like i said last time it it becomes alienation yeah yeah yeah. like it's actually a, a it's like progressive towards alienation yeah like the goal is separation um, which is tough because if, if alienation really is a problem, like we talked about in the last episode and that does produce things like suffering, then, then why do we want to, why is that the thing we want to build? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a hard one. I, uh, I do, I do think like in the, and maybe we'll, we'll be able to circle to that question, like in a spiral. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do think so. Okay. There's too much I want to say right now, like way too much. So much I want to say. So I'm I'm wrestling really really hard in my inner spirit. Um, you just get out onto the rooftop, start yelling. Uh, no, dude. So because um, <laughs> because so there's ways that we're so what I love about what you both are getting at you're getting at like central issues I think, and there's takes on this you know and and we have enough common agreement in a lot of things that it becomes about splitting hairs. Uh, or it can be mm-hmm. for me it is and and not not to divide but to clarify or to to drive the conversation deeper if you will so that's where i'm coming from in this um so when miguel when you talk about the uh, so okay so unity diversity in the sense that you you were you're talking about um a global community and and you said something really interesting about i kind of like the idea that these are disparate peoples that never touched each other. They're different, okay? Um, but they're coming at the same, they're arriving at similar points. Something about both of those to me um, uh, can hold as true, but it requires a lot more. And so one of the things that I like that, that you're getting at, Miguel, and you're talking about shared, as the way I call it is we have shared ontology, meaning we're human beings, so that's our shared. And then we, we have shared reality in the, in the universal sense. Uh, so like we all breathe air, we all breathe oxygen. That's why we are concerned about the climate and things like that, right? We we all know what it means to, um, in the general sense, breathe. Unless you're unless you're um, someone who encounters like a reason for not breathe. Like my son has a disease that, and my brother's son has a disease that, disease that only 130 people in the world have. So his reality is different in that he has a, a mutated gene as well that uh, means his life is going to look very different. My son's life will have a difference to it than the average person on the street, meaning the statistical average. 
Um, so there's these variations, but there's these universalities are not absolute. So we have a, uh, uh, layers of absolute or sorry, of universal shared experience by virtue of our common, common ontology and, and the external world that is prior to us being here. So we come to a world that exists independent from us with the ability to fill it out. And by filling, like think about how kid, like we're, when kids are two, they put stuff in their mouth. It's because their brain is expanding rapidly in those moments. Their taste receptors are sending information. They're becoming knowledgeable through taste and touch. Um, and so we have this world that's smellable, tasteable, and touchable, and it's deeply aesthetic, suggestion rich, and can be made much of. And we've proven that. But the question is when we make much of things, it's predicated on desire. And so there's desires we have, and they could be competing desires or conflicting desires. But so there's this like interplay. And so what's interesting is when you have different cultures and they come to similar conclusions about the same shared reality, which is a, a, a way of saying the first thing for me is chiefly there is a world. So when I say world, I'm, it's like almost Heideggerian, uh, more like Heidegger's earth world. So it's the earth itself and the world that uh, contains it is to say that there's more and then there's the earth, which is a deeply aesthetic place that suggests more. Um, and uh, we are coming to know something collectively and individually about this world and the artifacts and the things we make seem to be fairly consistent in a world that fluctuates in a fairly consistent way like gravity governs a certain percentage of the way the world exists. Like there's these inductive constants that we appeal to every time. Anytime you go to speak, you're appealing to uniformity in nature such that you expect words to be gathered through the utterance of sound and the formation of your mouth into intelligible communication. That's a human activity that we may, we may speak different language, but we speak. And so we don't really, I, I mean, I, and I'm just barely, I don't even know if I'm even saying anything yet. But um, I, what I'm saying is that uh, just the initiation of that discussion needs to be talked about, needs to mm -hmm. be unpacked. And we are terrified to have that discussion. Absolutely terrified. In fact, mm -hmm. um, the, the way we other, um, I mean, the, the truth is um, we are uh, unavoidably united in our common, common ontology. Unavoidably. We cannot separate that. Yeah, it's well, unavoidable. I, That's an ontological reality. We are human. Mm -hmm. What we do with that, we can debate. Yeah. Well, I think it's, you know, it's interesting, the stuff you're talking about. Like, if you just, you know, you, you're talking about just vocalizing thoughts. Mm -hmm. You know, if we actually uh, weren't so complacent uh, within our culture, um, and we thought of just how, like, magical that electrical impulses from our brain become, mm -hmm. uh oral sounds mm -hmm. out of our mouth that then communicate across independent bodies in a way that you understand, but mm -hmm. also means that you can tap into that language's past. Mm -hmm. So if we just had some, if we were just enamored with something like that and actually understood it and didn't just say, well, yeah, I mean, I can talk. And then, so we just go around kind of grunting, uh, like malformed beans. <laughs> like if we actually had like a, if we had a delight, in like how amazing it is to just kind of be alive. Like yeah. how much is going on for me to sit here 
and and kind of groan under the weight of, of my lunch like how much amazing stuff is going on for that to even take yeah. place um i think we'd be even more bothered by the stuff we talked about in the last episode yes to be like mm. just being yeah. here is crazy it's kind of a miracle hey yeah. like like i was reading one of my so favorite magical. authors he's talking he's like hey you live in a place where um <laughs> the cow standing out in green pasture eats the green grass that produces white milk yeah. And he's and then he's like, and then you drink it to strengthen your bones. Dude. <laughs> Let that sink in for a second. That's yeah. a freaking yep. miracle. Yeah. Or 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 there's great intentionality to it. Well the I like the the Jim Gaffigan joke where he yeah. says he's like, A pig can take an apple, literal garbage, and turn it into bacon. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's uh but it is it's magical. So so it is one of these things where um like if people come to me and they they're really kind of antagonistic toward the arts and they say things like what well, why does it even matter you know people got real problems you know people got this stuff they have to actually do and life is tough and I was like well you think you answered it um, like why it matters um, but also like <laughs> my wife said one day we had a painting behind her table and my my daughter was like why is this like odd Cause she was about three and a half four years old brightly colored there's a figure in the bottom left of it. And she was like, what, what does this mean? And, uh, it's a Chino Amobi painting. It is. Way. And it's fantastic. Mm. I love it. It's values just increase. I won't say any more than that. Heck yeah. So, uh, <laughs> the, uh, the wonderful thing is, uh, I always picked up my wife cause I like reading nonfiction more than I enjoy fiction. She's opposite. And I was like, I just don't get it. Like, what do you get out of it? And so I, I was trying to talk to my daughter about this painting and like why it was kind of the way it was. And you're not going to talk to like a three and a half year old about like formal qualities and like break it down. And so I said, well, I do sometimes. <laughs> okay. I said, well, sometimes, uh, artists can actually use things, uh, to make real life actually more magical. Um, and, and she, she accepted that. She was like, hmm, okay, I get that. And then my wife kind of looked over at me and she was like, that's why I like fiction. And I was like, ah, crap. Yeah. Do actually, you know, the artistry points to the magic that actually is. Yeah. Uh, it's another way. It, I mean, to say the same thing, but to say that it's to say that the world, you know, along the lines of suggestion rich mm -hmm. reality is that it, that it's, uh, there's necessarily the elusivity to more And our imagination is the kind of thing that we have to thrust into the space to engage with that, which is imaginable. And so in that we have experiences that alter our state and our sense of awareness and, and, um, and wonder, and, and here's the thing. I mean, I, I have to say this, but it, 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 it could or could not, the, the elephant in the room is metaphysics, but so, um, in the sense that, uh, how far do you go in this discussion before you have to talk about first things or, um, and that's a whole discussion that I would love to have. Um, but, uh, the, um, when you get that, when you get that, that the world is a kind of uh, propositional reality uh, laden with potential. And we're the kind of people that are, uh, we're the kind of beings that are doings in a way, like we, we have to do to be, mm -hmm. we, we cannot exist in a static state for very long. Yeah. We try and that's why we're not healthy, but we're, we're kind of like, you know, we're, we're finite and we're contingent. So we have to kind of move. We have to kind of do things. So, so, you know, I think that's where, uh, for me, song, dance, love making, art, um, storytelling, yeah. um, relationships are at the core of who we are, but we are beholden to a magnanimous fear and a kind of deep within 
fallibility yeah. that uh, we seem to not be able to overcome. And it, and it is a part of our shared common ontology. Mm-hmm. And we have a death ahead of us. Mm-hmm. And so in between those two points of, of tension, we have to partition out a lot of time to deal with that, which causes us to move away from what seems to be our most primary calling, if you will, which is to do the other stuff that I just said. Yeah. But because that can't be commodified, or it can't, I mean, or it, it, it ought not be commodified only, mm-hmm. but because of these other factors, that's the only way it finds its way in. Uh, that's why, that's, that's why if I could go on a soapbox and say, that's why the world right now is so grossly sexualized that, um, you get sexualized, uh, video or commercials to sell you a phone. Mm-hmm. I don't need sex to pick up a phone. I, I, I really don't. And my kids don't, but we are sexualizing everything. So, so now think about how that co-ops the art. So if you're talking about sensuality mm-hmm. in a non-sexual way, yeah. we don't have a category for that. Yeah. I mean, like, it makes, it makes it hard. I mean, you know, uh, you have, uh, times where you have to explain to somebody like why a Renaissance painting or, uh, some like old master had some nudes and it was mm-hmm. like, what are they, what were they, what were they trying to do? And I was like, yeah. well, I mean, maybe there were some creepy old dudes, Yeah, but also maybe there was something about like, uh, mythos and yeah, liter- there, there, literature. There, yeah. There may be something there in the actual figure. Yeah. Something that's important beyond, uh, it's, objectifiable use which was there for sure yeah, totally. but, but also yeah to your point well it's it's this uh you know um it's I, I always think of pornography and sort of the uh always oh yeah always i'm just i'm always <laughs> just thinking about porn did, all did, the time dude how did ian jump into your brain i don't know i don't that know was really weird yeah but but i think about like how the most in my mind, a lot of the most important kind of benchmarks in life get turned into a form of pornography. Mm. And obviously, like, sex and sexuality being one of them. But I also think that in the way uh, death is treated in, like, popular culture, mm-hmm. I feel like isn't really death, but mm-hmm. kind of a pornography of death. Mm-hmm. I think of when I would go to see, like the way people talk about childbirth, mm-hmm. um, I feel, and the kind of like, you know, these images I see, or even even how we talk about like uh, important things like um, marriage mm-hmm. and how it is sanitized and cleaned up and there's this sort of like uh, social media image of marriage. Like one of the most comforting things, a friend of mine who's in like a really successful, happy marriage you know um this is around the time that uh when christine and i uh when i proposed to christine and my friend the most comforting thing anyone told me is she said when my husband proposed to me i was absolutely terrified and i was just like thank you so much for being honest that like this is terrifying it's joyous and it's wonderful and it's beautiful but it's also in other aspects, really, really intimidating and really scary and has me thinking about this bigger narrative of what my life is and what I'm going to do while I'm here. And 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 I think these benchmarks uh, kind of propel us into that sort of what you were saying, this kind of birth, death, like we suddenly see a totality of our existence when we engage in these things. And I think that 
the way our media functions is it's sort of like an apparatus mm-hmm. that tries to block that sort of self-reflection mm-hmm. so we don't get we don't get real discussions about human sexuality mm-hmm. we get porn what mm-hmm. has happened with our porn it's over time it's become increasingly less narrative mm-hmm. who the people are having sex uh the backstory all of that like i was listening i was watching a documentary called life after porn about r- retired porn actors and they were saying how they missed the old days when there was an actual story a script yeah there was a script you actually <laughs> rooted for somebody it wasn't just watching do you need your cable fixed <laughs> <laughs> but you know <laughs> yeah you know you're you're rooting for the pizza guy you know like and uh Big but they're saying that, like, as silly, as silly as that is, I do think it's a microcosm of what's happening because now pornography is just the bare mechanics. Like, it's sex divorced from the human condition. Mm. Ma- we talk about marriage in a way that divorces it from the human condition. We talk about death in a way that divorces it from the human condition. Like, I had some coworkers teasing me about how they're like, man, everybody in your work, Miguel... Your paintings, it looks like people either want to have sex or they're going to die. And, you know, and I was just like, I was, but it's just like, but I'm drawn to those. You're like, well, both of those things are true, actually. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I'm drawn to those things because it's, it gets in touch with, those are very direct things that are so pivotal to what it means to be human and to have a human life and um and sometimes as an artist i feel like what i'm trying to do is reconnect those things mm. to kind of reclaim a a a, a totality of my humanity that is unsupported by the broader culture and i don't know i i, I just i think that's really important and um and i think the reason part about you know being risk averse i think one of the reasons we're we're suffering averse we're we're pain averse and stuff is because when you talk about any of those important aspects of life that come up in art and talk about the part of it that's painful it brings you into that more reflective Mm-hmm. mode i think it brings you into a heightened awareness of your own condition and and i wanted to respond to what you're saying about like metaphysics and i don't know where you're going with metaphysics um uh but i don't even think that but i think you can have this conversation and address it by without metaphysics you can even have it at the level of we are a particular organism that's evolved in a particular shared environment that has common purposes and common needs. Like that would be the John Dewey approach. And that's called pragmatism, my friend. Oh, I know. And yeah. I, I am a pragmatist. If yes. you haven't noticed. Yeah. Um, never, I never picked that up. Miguel. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but speaking of pragmatism, this is just, uh, this, I stumbled across this William James quote about, where he's trying to emphasize the importance of material reality. Mm -hmm. And he's kind of arguing against this like dismissal Mm -hmm. of, you know, the tangible 
world, and he says, matter is indeed infinitely and incredibly refined. To anyone who has ever looked on the face of a dead child or parent, the mere fact that matter could have taken for a time that precious form ought to make matter sacred ever after. It makes no difference what the principle of life may be, material or immaterial, matter at any rate cooperates, lends itself to all life's purposes. That beloved incarnation was among matter's possibilities. And I just think that's so beautifully stated. And I think it really gets to the heart of what we're talking about and the, 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 the underlying thing we don't want to look at that suffering makes us look at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that, that's huge. And it, it, it kind of gets me thinking down a path of like, you know, often when we talk about that, that, that spectrum of like suffering to death, um, we think of death as like, oh, it's, it's this physical mortality based death. And we don't think that we can live an entire life of death, right? Because we can live an entire life where mm. we're never touching on what you're talking about, about that, like whatever his, his last few words were there and about that, you know, the, the incarnated kind of magical uh, thing in that matter that we can actually go through most of our life and never, you know, you can kind of have the whole, uh, the uh, whole, um, <laughs> the, the whole, like um, the, the William Wallace thing, right? You know, like every man, Freedom. Yeah. Well, how's it go? You know, not every man lives. Every man dies, but not every man lives. Oh, Julius. yeah. You know, and it's like, I think that's a there's, a, there's a lot tied up in that because when we talk about suffering, aversion to suffering, aversion to pain, if there is a human experience and that is a, there's a, there's a totality in that, that phrasing and definition, which means that if you are averse to all of the negative side of humanity, then you're probably not actually experiencing the positive side either. Like there's something about that, that that's you're you're removing life. You are literally dehumanizing yourself. No. Uh, in the words of like Neil Postman, you're amusing yourself to death, right? You're just uh, you're just saying, please let me drink the Kool Aid. Just <laughs> let me be comatose until I get to turn back into dust. <laughs> let me drink my sugary drink while I give myself a shot because uh, I have diabetes. <laughs> An insulin yes. shot, <laughs> but this, in between bites. But but all of this like. Uh, I don't know, it just kind of begs the question of like, how did we get here? Okay, so can I, okay, so. That's a big one right That's a big question, Miguel. Can I I say about. uh, Dude, that's a big one. Hey, real two two seconds. I just ate the Philly cheesesteak. So I'm dealing with two things right now. My stomach is doing its own version of, oh, it has nothing to do with this conversation. And then I'm doing an, oh, so I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if I pass out. It's because I'm holding back in two in two ways. Are you saying if you uh, if you if you pass out, we just continue? Yeah, okay, I'll come cool. back. Is that why you're the color purple right now? Yeah, because I'm holding in all my thoughts, and I'm also holding in other stuff. The sandwich. Okay, you, go you for it. Carry on, Ian. Dude, it's the hundredth episode, man. I gotta let my hair down a little bit. Miguel gave me permission. He told me beforehand. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Ian. <laughs> oh gosh. Anyways, uh, yeah, talking about enjoying in life and was the a, a lot episode. of which that's yeah. correct. What you were describing earlier was uh, it, it sounded a lot of it was just a, a lust for life, a, li- a life of exuberance, like embracing. And Ryan, you said the uh, the artistry is pointing towards the magic that is. Um, I just got back from Amsterdam. Speaking of magic, uh, I was there for a month and. 
Amsterdam is a is a dreamscape. There's there's something implicit in everything in Amsterdam that in my my time there, I think it was best summarized with a word and it, it doesn't translate exactly and if any Dutch people are listening, I, I very apologize. Towards the pronunciation, <laughs> um, Dutch is very hard. Uh, they had a word, it was called gezellig, and it was, it was, which is the verb where the sort of the, the noun, the phenomenon was gezelligheid. Oh God, I'm butchering. I'm so sorry. But the point is, is that they don't directly translate. And my best estimation of sort of what it is, is was demonstrated everywhere in the city. And it, it seemed to be in a, a capsule form is like good for good's sake, beauty for beauty's sake to find a love within all things. So if there's, there was a, a some guy there who <laughs> he, I, I can't believe this story is real, but he, so he made, there's all the canals that run through Amsterdam and he had, uh, he was an old musician, um, sort of at the, I don't know, end of his time. Uh, he's still around. I don't know why I'm saying so he's it like that. We're just talking about death. He's okay. still there. Uh, and he turned a hot tub that he had into a boat. And so he was going through the canals and he's in his hot tub boat and he was a very accomplished trumpet saxophone uh, player. And so he, <laughs> for whatever reason, he was sort of like half naked with a toga and he would go through the canals and he was playing the trumpet like very well. And people loved it. Like everyone was coming around and like, oh my God, it's, it's a hot tub guys here. And everyone was cheering and he, he was very good at what he did. And so, so many people liked it that the Dutch government found out about it. And they tracked him down and they're like, so people love what you're doing. Here's some money to keep on doing it. And so mm. there was this, a seeking out of that which is loved in order to ensure that it can stay around, whether he needed the money or not was besides the point. Point was, was bolstering it. And I think there's something about that was, was chazelic. There's other moments that it's like a, what would normally have been a parking lot, somebody turned into a tulip bed that other people found out about and then it had since become a massive parking lot wide uh garden that was just mm -hmm. flourishing everywhere i mean it had fruits it had vegetables you could even like i mean it was for the people there but you could if you wanted to like grab a squash right off the wall and i just think there's something so significant about embracing fully that which is beautiful that that which is lustful towards life that makes it worth living and there seemed to be in touch with every single person that you love life. Mm -hmm. And I, I, there's something so disarming about that of just walking through the streets. And there's in some sense, it's not like everyone's just skipping through the streets or anything, but the kindness that I experienced from people that was just like, they went out of their way to see a, a stranger or uh, like somebody that was on a date came over and, and this older gentleman was just like, I hope you have the best night tonight. And it wasn't creepy. It wasn't like he was like, just <laughs> like coming on to you. It was, uh, it was so friendly. And there were just moments of why, like, why did you do that thing? And it's like, mm -hmm. Oh, cause it's beautiful. And it's like, that's enough. And yeah. something in that. And with that, I think like you're saying it, it draws this contrast towards the understanding of our mortality, the short time that we have here with each other, I think is way better spent having a really good time and loving the aspects in which it make it beautiful and pointing towards inherently that which is already so beautiful that we take for granted every single moment and for whatever reason i i saw that everywhere in amsterdam and maybe i had rose-colored glasses that were on maybe you had smoked a couple jays there was a lot of joints they have a lot of weed 
Um, no, I, I'm going to go ahead and say I think that's a contribution to everything being beautiful. I'm not going to lie. It probably helped. But that yeah. being said, it did point me towards the truth of good for good's sake, beauty for beauty's sake, being implicit in things and being celebrated by those who truly believe it without even having so much to talk about. Well, I think, you know, and, and one thing I think of, because you're, as you're talking about this, I'm just thinking through like, okay, have I seen that in uh, American culture? Uh, where have I seen that? How have I seen it? What are the shades of it? And I don't know. I don't... I don't. I don't think this it's is hard cynical. To I don't think this is cynical. What I'm about to say, I don't think it is. But y'all, y'all check me on it if it is. Um, but I think there's a difference between something that feels actually like generative, and kind of uh, positivistic, like moving out, and something that feels sort of reverse engineered. You know, so we have the the sort of thing where it's like you know the beautiful sort of the the moments like you're describing that can happen, that feel like a flourishing, mm-hmm. and then there are other moments where it's like. Well, I know that I can achieve this if I can use this as kind of the fulcrum. Right. So let me um, let me achieve my my fame, my money, my personal uh, feeling of importance by doing one of these things. So those acts can be very like life giving and affirming, or they can be things that are just co opting in order to do it. So it's like, Hey, uh, I heard this guy in a hot tub on the canals, got some money from the government. I'm going to be the hot so tub. I'm going to, I'm going to go get another I'm hot gonna tub. be bathtub man. Oh, you mean, bathtub you mean boy. a guy was singing, um, Fleetwood Mac on a skateboard and, and then, drinking uh, ocean spray just cause he loved it. And then just, just cause he loved thing. it. And then they, they paid him and then wait, what happened? Like everybody, everybody started drinking, drinking ocean spray. spray nobody got, yeah. nobody got paid. <laughs> yeah. And I think, but I think that's, that's the, the thing that's so hard sometimes is that, you, we uh, we have a culture that has such a big mouthpiece that it's hard sometimes to parse like which one was like organic and generative, yeah. and which ones were just false co-opting and appropriation. Yeah. Um, Dude, that's is, so freaking cynical, Gareth. Yeah, I don't want to I don't want to chase this part down too much, but I do think part of the distinction you're making has to do with, um, and I really don't want to chase it down too hard, but I just want to say this: America is uh, hasn't been around very long, and it's a giant experiment and Amsterdam has a rich sort of a long-standing history that's right so there's a lot of uh, soil tilling that keeps begetting more fruit it's true but so, it's so also I'm not set, I'm just saying it is something way. it is yeah, all I'm, I'm only up. saying that to say that those things are to be considered yeah they are oh yeah I mean I was thinking about that often like the fascinating part of the city is that I mean it's literally built out of a swamp and the base of it Underneath all of these buildings and the gorgeous architecture that's everywhere is the very strong tree stumps. And the way they mm. worked out the canals is that as long as the tree isn't exposed to the air, it does not rot. It becomes sort of fossilized underneath the city. And because of the rising and the falling of uh, the, the world's water in many different ways, uh, some of the trees are becoming exposed. And so it's sort of warping and bending and some of the buildings get that sort of Diagon Alley, like Harry Potter quality. Ooh, I, love, yeah. I love the but, name Diagon Alley. Yeah. Nice. And so, but the, the interesting thing about it is that the built, the city was built like they just chose the place and they built it from the ground up and in that implicit with beauty. And that was valuable to create a generative city that didn't feel uh, like they're yeah. deriving a bunch mm-hmm. of jank from it and still it brings, and now they're having a housing crisis because so many people want to live there. That's like, right. Which is a good and a very bad problem mm-hmm. at the same time. But I think what's important to bring from that is that we can build our cities. We can build our communities. We can build our relationships in such a way that they generate more men in, in hot tubs that are half naked that can play <laughs> us from butts. Yeah. So, and, 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 and I like that, right? Because the, uh, the idea that, um, you don't have to just like, 
you don't have to just appease the people in the place where you live. Like your, mm-hmm. your government doesn't just have to be an opiate for the masses. Um, you don't have to appease the people. Like actually, if you make a place worth living, like people will pay whatever they have to, to be there. They'll go out of their way across the world just to be there. Yeah. And it's amazing, <gasps> but we don't think of it that way. Right. We're just like, uh, well, what if we just sow death into every part of our culture and then just tell people they really like it and put out a PR campaign about it. And then we just tell them that suffering is happiness. And if you feel different, then we don't like you. Um, and then we don't have to worry about whether or not we have to and actually that, have conversations. That will and depopulate thoughts. the planet. And then there'll be less people and more, more resources to consume for more, more elite people. That's right. But that's another story. Um, but if we, but if we do those things, like it to the, to the points, uh, I think that we made through the, this episode and the last one, like th- those are easier paths forward or that we feel as a path forward. They're easier paths. It's, it's easier to, uh, to have the, the PR event than it is to wait around for a guy who wants to be playing music from a hot tub, right? <laughs> it's easier to do that. Yeah. Um, it, it's easier. Even if the trade off of that is that there probably will be people that actually find it hollow and not helpful. And at the end of the day are disillusioned by it. Um, that actually sometimes our best efforts can breed suffering. Um, because we're, we're, we're moving away from the harder things in life. Like how many people are sitting around, on a day having a three to four hour conversation about the things in life that matter. But then all through college, we read stories about people were like, that's literally what they did for their job. They Mm -hmm. sat in places and they thought deeply about life. They were making art and sharing it with people in situations because it was about struggling and making drinking, drinking good drink too. drinking a good drink. Yes. I mean, you know, we've, we've commodified that, right? We've taken all these, these third places and we've said, Oh, there's a phrase for these. So now we can just make them. We can just cookie cutter these things into pieces of garbage <laughs> and we can do that instead of saying, no, there's actually things that build them. Don't and, you talk about Taco Bell like that again, dude. <laughs> That's a deal breaker, my friend. It's, it's in its own thing. Okay. It has no Venn diagram. Okay. It just exists in a circle. Okay. okay. So, uh, it'll but, be a nation state one day, hey, but no. you have these things that actually came out of, Actions that were generative. Yeah. They were moving towards something, not just acting in opposition of something and not just saying, hey, we'll fill a gap. Let's just fill a gap with some appeasement. Let's just appease these folks. So, hey, how far do you guys want to go in this conversation? How deep does the rabbit well, I mean, hole go? How, how, how open are you to disagreement? Um, I know that's a terrible question because you're stuck. How, say, how do you, how do you, how do how you, you answer, answer that, that question? question? You, yeah. you, you, you. I'm, I mean. I disagree with your question about disagreement. As long as we can still be friends after. Okay. Okay. That's it. I, I think we can. I dislike you because you want to disagree, dude. No. Okay. So, <laughs> so how awkward. So, so I, I want to make it awkward, but not because I want to make it awkward, but because I'm like, dude, there's, okay. There's no way to talk about this any, any more unless you have something to push against or something that makes you think. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Okay. So, and sometimes it's helpful if it's a wall that you don't want to climb. Cause then you're like, damn it. I don't want to climb that wall. I don't want to talk about that. And so, um, I'm just listening and I'm wrestling in my inner soul on things that I think or believe or know in, in my, in my way. And, um, it's tricky, but I think it could be, I think part of me is like tempted because I'm like, there is, okay. It's like when we talk about like what, what you said, Miguel, like what you don't know is two weeks ago, I was at a funeral for, a, uh, a friend, uh, passing of their baby. Oh man. Yeah. So, um, and that's not to make you, that's not to make you feel any kind of way. It's just to say what it's, what's crazy about that illustration you gave is I just watched two people eulogize their child who was 33 weeks old. Mm -hmm. She had to deliver 
Oh, these are close friends that had to deliver their baby. They had to reconcile with the beautiful and the loss. And the worldview or, or the way of making them the most reasonable sense of all of it. Um, and there was, you know, a lot of crying. And it was a, it was a, it was a very, very powerful, moving, hopeful, and disparaging time all in the same. And uh, so, so I'm sitting here and I'm thinking about these things and this just happened. Uh, um, it was last Sunday, I can't remember because the time, time frames were, are escaping me, but it just happened. We just sat through it, we just watched it. Um, I once visited a hospital for some friends who had the same experience and I actually held their son Oscar who had passed away before birth um, in my arms and I stared at his face, I felt his body like in my hands. Um, and so that's the raw material experience. Mm. So there's like there's birth and death all right there. Um, and when I think about what you're saying, there's a lot of yeses for me. And this is not for you to have to defend or anything. It's just my, my thinking out loud, but I, but, but there's also everyone who's suffering and knows that for every person who goes to a party and has a good time, there's somebody who can't control it, right? That, that for them, the good time turns into a life of addiction, mm-hmm. the very same celebration, the very same, um, time with the very same people sends people into very different trajectories. Um, and so what, what is, what is circling for me is, uh, what philosophers call, uh, the, you know, you, I, I don't like the world worldview, but I'm going to use it cause it's the most accessible for right now. And so I'm not a big worldview person. I almost use it pragmatically or, uh, a lot of times, but, um, de- depending on how thick or thin your worldview is, uh, you'll, you'll have to throw things out to make claims, meaning you'll have to ignore something that's also there on the table in order to make the, the claim that you make. And my whole thing is, uh, it's been for a long time now is I don't want to throw anything out. And so by not throwing anything out, it place, places greater, uh, you could call it philosophical, ideological, existential, uh, literal demands uh, that, uh, drives us back and, and you can muscle forward, um, in, you know, in, in arrogance, I can, or I can step back in humility and kind of go, okay, I gotta, I actually gotta go places I don't want to go. And, and how I think through the totality of this as much as I can as a, as a average dude, you know, with, uh, a lot of past sufferings and hard experiences and desires and longings. And I've known fleeting pleasures and enduring, satisfactions and dissatisfactions. And so, um, so when I'm listening to this conversation, um, I'm torn because I want to, I, I like, it's like, I want to go further in. So when I said metaphysics and you said, we don't have to, um, my, my answer to my response to that is you're right. We don't. Um, but I suspect from what I know that is open to disagreement or, or disapproval even that there is a lot of light that can be shed by putting certain categories on the table. Um, to, to kind of help uh, sort of drive the conversation home. Because if we said like, hey, we're suffering and one of the things we're avoiding is death, right? And, and so then there's an intense celebration of life, which is kind of where you're getting at, uh, through positivistic experiences. It doesn't deal with death at all. It doesn't, it doesn't, 
it doesn't uh, change what I saw two weeks ago. You see, so what I what I'm saying is, um, is these are deep, deep things that you don't you don't overcome. Uh, uh, you know, our our best efforts are. I've had sizable amount of death in the last year year and a half in my family. Uh, people are dying right now, or people are suffering right now. You know, we're we're experiencing that, which is why I think this is a risky conversation. Um, actually, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, you come in and you talk about suffering and death, like it becomes risky. And so, um, I know you guys are like, what the heck is he talking about? <laughs> um, I'm trying to like frame this if, if yeah, you yeah. will, if, yeah. if you will. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, um, so, uh, mm, well, you got any thoughts off what I've just, I don't know. I, yeah, I got more I to have say. Some, well, I have some responses. Okay. Is, um, well, for one thing, when I said that I don't think we need met- metaphysics, I, I did not mean that is a dismissal of yeah, metaphysics. I didn't think that. Yeah, yeah. What I meant was that we can find evidence to back up what we're talking about, even just talking purely about our tangible physical reality. Yeah. And, um, and usually when it comes to philosophical debate and stuff like that, that's what I consider to be the most common ground i yeah, mean i, I have i have my own personal metaphysical uh leanings that have come from uh experiences things that have happened to mm-hmm. me uh especially some very strange things that happened literally the day my dad died um that suggests to me uh that there is a a, a something that at least from our perspective mm-hmm. we could comfortably categorically call like metaphysical mm-hmm. and um but one i know that that's not something that a lot of people are going to find uh relatable but also um it's it's also when it comes to those kind of experiences i, I don't feel i feel more like i i can just accept them i don't feel the need to uh, kind of parcel and break mm-hmm. down and try to explain mm-hmm. away the metaphysical. I just feel uh, grateful mm-hmm. for for having uh, these kind of seemingly transcendent experiences. Um, so yeah. Um, so I guess yeah. Just to clarify, so I, in no way do I don't feel like you know I I've, I know some people who strike me as just being very immature because they're like adamant materialist. Mm-hmm. And, um, no, and, I, and, I, and I'm definitely not advocating for that. I just think that, uh, the aesthetic, um, which I think is the baseline of all of our experience, uh, is enough to advocate for the importance of addressing, um, suffering suffering mm-hmm. in the full diversity of human experience um and i almost feel like talking about the metaphysics i feel like is maybe a more private conversation that's almost kind of like icing on the cake you know if if you're in the right company if mm-hmm. you're with people that you can have that kind of conversation with um i, I guess sort of a response to like what Ian was talking about, about his experience in Amsterdam and this garden and these like very life positive experiences is 
it reminded me of um, uh, something Sally Mann said mm-hmm. about like the South and relating the South to kind of old Europe and speaking to like European tourists who come to the United States and what I guess in her experience she found that they found more relatable about the South is the history of death and tragedy and the like unavoidable human suffering that um, and in a sense I think sort of in maybe older cultures like in Amsterdam uh, maybe the ever maybe there's I don't know I can't speak because I'm not from one of those cultures I'm American that's that's my framework that I'm working with but I, I, I sometimes wonder do older cultures have a more ever-present awareness of suffering and death that contextualizes that kind of uh, life-affirming positive activity in a way that we might not see it in our culture um well, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think our culture, we're more I'd prone yes, to, big time. yeah, we're more prone to get plastic surgery to ensure that we don't look old. Mm-hmm. Anything we can, and that's no judgment on, on folks getting plastic surgery. What I'm saying though, is we're, we have a heavy drift towards, um, if you look at the health industry, you look at, uh, and I'm not anti-health, even though I'm not the most healthy guy, like, but if you look at medications, if you look at, um, how much money is spent on self-help and, um, how many books have the, like, you know, somebody gave me a book for eating right called how not to die. And it's like, well. Huh. It's misleading because you're going to die one way or the other. But I, right. I know the heart of the book is to eat better, right? So, but we, so we, it's interesting that what we build into our culture is the uh, ability to not die, or the idea that we we can extend life. Like there's people that are, you know, what Bezos say his next goal is to work on this technology that'll extend life. Um, transhumanism. Transhumanism, right? So yeah. we're we're in this kind of uh, that's a value that's being driven very hard. A lot of money and emphasis is put there. And then, so in contrast to, I think, Miguel, what you're saying, which I think is right, that you see in the customs and the folklore and the, uh, the rituals even. So, I mean, that's, that's where I'm saying, like, to me, you know, if I, if there was a possible way of talking about, you know, you know, different, different kind of categories. So, so if we said, let's reset for a second. If we said, what is death? Well, what paradigm are you working out of to understand death? Right. If you're Buddhist, death means something different, right? There's a kind of uh, 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 um, karma or a reincarnation. There's a, you know, if you're if you're Hindu, there's a there's a there's a way it goes. If you're uh, Judeo uh, Christian, there's a way it goes. If you're um, uh, Taoist, there's a way it goes. If you're uh, you know if you're a uh, materialist, there's a way it goes. You know if you're um, kind of a practicing and kind of a I mean, like, if you go through any system, there's a way of uh, that people will say that they, like, like. So there's people that believe that death is total annihilation. You you cease to be. You're completely gone, you know. And so then you're like, in between these two points, do I go into a hot dub because I know that, because I know that I'm gonna be gone. Like I am gone. This is it. And then there's other people that speculate, and so they speculate towards well, there might be something, and so they live in a kind of state of speculation. And, agnostic right? yeah kind of agnostic and then you have people that are like well um i i really don't know so i like the idea of my consciousness existing 
you know, on a hard drive or in a, and, and I'm saying that not in a flippant way. I'm saying I've talked to people that are, are doing intensive research that way. And you have people that are like channeling spirits, uh, trying to figure out, Hey, what's on, can you tell me what's on the other side of this? Like, you know, uh, Jim Morrison break on through kind of thing. And then you have people that they're like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm going to work today. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> like, no, I'm going to work today. Like, what, what are we, what are we talking about? Like, huh? And then it's not till, it's not till your body breaks down or something really close to you happens and then you're jolted, which is kind of what I think has happened to the world in the last two years. And, and mm-hmm. especially for the sort of the most privileged parts of the world, the West in many ways, where, where it's it, suffering and death is not present on the street level. Yeah. It, you're like, wait, wait, time out. Like this is happening in, in front of me. And it's like, well, no, it's always been happening. Mm-hmm. We've just, we've created some mechanisms that, um, you know, cause us to avoid it or think that it's not happening. Yeah. You know, it's not part and parcel to, to the, the abnormal state is when it's not happening. It's literally not mm-hmm. on your street. It's like it's, street. it's a rarefied, like rare suburbia fight, is like, this is beyond yes. anything else. Yeah. 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 It's like when a uh, famous story, I went to my doctor when they're, she's delivering my, my first daughter and, uh, the Sandy Hook shootings happened, you know, which is a travesty. And she's like, how could this happen? Like, and I'm like, how could it not happen? Uh, you, you're only shocked by it because it happened in like, and, um, to be fair, she's from India, but I was like very affluent. And I was like, you're only, you're only feeling that way because it happened in a suburban space of a kind of affluence. I said, I grew up in Los Angeles. Something's was happening all the time. Yeah. Friends, friends that were murdered where parties were set up. My friend Stanley was murdered. I've set up in the past, but they created a party when he walked to the door, everybody said, what's up? Surprise. And the guy came around back and shot him in the back as a revenge killing as a teenager, you know, like I'm saying like, but no one ever talked about that because of course that happens because it's not in the suburbs. It's in this inner city. Um, you know, so, so we create these enclaves and these bubbles. We, we, so to me, it's like, um, if we, if it is worth, I mean, for me, it is worth parsing out. I think it is like a impactful. Um, and I appreciate what you were saying, which I knowing you like, you know, um, I feel like what you said is, is what I would, is, is what I felt. So like Miguel, when, you know, when you're saying, when I said that, you know, we could talk about metafix or we can't, I was meaning like strictly in, you know, like in this conversation, you know, we can, or we can't. Um, uh, cause, because to your point, there's a, what you're appealing to is a kind of self-evidence, like an axiomatic state to reality that's sufficient as saying like, these things do happen. I do know. Mm-hmm. intense love or, or what we might call beauty, which for me is problematic, but I understand. So you say beautiful or you say uh, weighty or impassioned or the lust for life thing. Like we're experiencing that we're buffering it and mediating it, but it's, it's enough to build from. Um, yeah, it, think- it maybe isn't, but, but my thing is it's sufficient. It's enough to start from, but I actually think there's still more that can help frame the, frame the discussion. Well, yeah, I think, you know, we uh, sufficiently, I think we've said that everybody's in our culture is super uncomfortable with death. We don't like talking about it. We try to push it off as much as possible to such an extent that we even push off things that are much less, uh, uh, m- much less impactful than mm-hmm. death. So we push off suffering, we push off pain, we push off any of that. Um, and I, you know, I, I kind of think about um, like w- when larger questions of like, you know, the, the end of end of life comes, which hopefully is a long, long way from now for me. Um, when all those things come up, 
uh, I don't know. We're in the same boat, Ryan, in the, in the fact that like I think we think in sports metaphors mm-hmm. <laughs> um, most of the time. So I think of like, you know, uh, practice and games. Um, whenever I was growing up playing sports, like we had to always be practicing in preparation for that game. And so um, I think in a, in a culture that constantly avoids the, the reality of death, mm-hmm. like it, it's almost like, well, what are we like, what are we doing? Like if there is a practice, if we had practice, but there was no game for a few weeks, mm-hmm. we just kind of playing pickup ball, mm-hmm. you know, just kind of goofing off. And, but we could also practice towards what we understood the game would be. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think that's the thing that's, that's tough for me is I see, I see friends, students, I see myself when I look back on my life, um, kind of ignoring what is at the end. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm doing is I'm always just kind of playing a goof off pickup game. Mm-hmm. And then I look back and I'm like, man, I, I wish I would have done that thing with more, with more vigor. Yeah. I wish I would have done this thing with more seriousness or I wish I would have done this thing with less seriousness. Mm-hmm. Right. Or I wish I would have taken less time at doing these other things. Um, I think that's the reflective piece you're talking about, Miguel, that we, we don't have the time for that reflective stuff because we don't often think about where things are headed. And I think that's the uncomfortable conversation around death. It's also just to put it out there. That's a lot of the uncomfortability around uh, everything that's been going on for the last year and a half is that we haven't, we haven't found places like we're fatigued for trying to like dodge the fact that people die. Mm -hmm. And so we're living in a culture right now where we're like, we're like, no, 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 it doesn't. Hollywood, glitz and glamour, binge another TV show. Um, meanwhile, everything else is telling us, like, no, it ends, it ends, it ends. And I think, uh, I mean, dude, the, the, the one that got me, I mean, not the one, dude, I, I know it, people have made fun of me for this, but like, and I wasn't a huge Kobe Bryant fan. Dude, but when Kobe Bryant died, that got me. It yeah. did something to me. Like, I'm like, Kobe Bryant died in a, in a helicopter? Yeah. Like, he died, like, like, what like and then his daughter like it it um norm mcdonald just did that for me yeah it's yeah like, what he had cancer for nine years yeah, and didn't even years. talk about it didn't in perfect it. norm fashion yeah, yeah that one same thing i was like yeah. slapped upside the head like oh wow like those people that celebrate uh i mean like he's made what tens of millions of people laugh and then just mm-hmm. all of a sudden it's a, a news article and he's not that old no he's 61 yeah yeah yeah, yeah. It's, and, and i think it's super tough and i think it's one of the things that one of the reasons why that the topic is so compelling throughout the art historical canon is that there is something really weird about these like weird, like meaty, fleshy things we embody that at some point are drained of that existence in some mm-hmm. way, you know, and it's, it's a weird and awkward thing. Um, and it's also not a small thing, Mm-mm. right? So whether we're talking about, you know, the, the sadness at the loss or the realization that loss is going to happen. So we should have the lust for life no matter what we're talking about in those spaces, we're still talking about the same thing that like, this is a weird kind of enchanted thing that's going on. And we probably are not actually understanding it well. And we're well, not thinking about it. Well, that's where I, I do appreciate what, so when I was talking about sexuality, I was meaning it and maybe like in, in the sense that I think Miguel got it, which is the, in, 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 in where it ebbs towards pornographic in ways yeah, yeah. that it, 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 um, and not maybe what Miguel, your work deals with, Mm-hmm. Where where oh, yeah, I, I, th- I totally understood where yeah, you're coming yeah, yeah. from. And I think and I think that's why I use the word sensuality, like the, the intimacy, the closeness of things, that we're sensate beings that um, that our bodies are actually this this is it. Yeah. Um and, yeah, there's uh, a right knowledge of existence and then there's the caricature we put on top of it to yeah, make us feel the better costume about the caricatures. Fact that it just is for now. And that and in, in that in that point of like 
uh, intimacy in that sense that can bring about uh, children and um, and dying that the avoidance of suffering becomes the uh, the staving off of of death in the pursuit of life like there's this kind of dynamism or interplay between these points mm-hmm. and, and you know and so you know so I mean that's like part of the point point of why we'd have this kind of discussion is like yeah. I think it's to say that you know uh, for me it's to say that um, you don't have to pursue suffering because life is full of it yeah. and so it, you, you actually have the freedom to try to find um, uh, different validators for the nature of your work mm-hmm. that, to not romanticize suffering because because you're 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 cartoonifying a, a, an unavoidable reality that's coming for you mm-hmm. and you will then not be prepared for it because yeah. you haven't you haven't been storing up enough of the kinds of things that uh, mitigate the difficulty of suffering when it comes for you. Well, and the opposite of avoiding it does not have to be obsessing over it, no. right? It's not a it's not a gross morbidity about something mm-hmm. where we're just like every day is about death. You know, mm-hmm. it's not the it's not the angsty twelve year old with like four layers of eyeliner on yeah. going through life. Don't dare you talk about me. <laughs> you know, it's not it's not <laughs> a it's not those sort of things, yeah. right? Because that's a character of it in itself as well. Yeah. Right. Uh so the same way you can avoid it in a character and just have nothing but like kind of pushing off arms like appeasement, you can you can dive into the reality of it in a character. Mm-hmm. Um, and that becomes really difficult because it's like, well, what are you doing? Well, you're, you're wasting life in the same way. Mm-hmm. You just look a little different doing it. Um, so what does it look like to live within that space in the middle where like you understand that a natural end is there and you can, uh, you can kind of live in that space. And I think one thing that has always kind of struck me is the picture that, um, Monet painted of his wife when she passed away. And it's, it's difficult because like, it's an image that even before you see what it is or hear about it, when you look at that image, you can tell like, this is, it's not a woman sleeping. Like there's something, the nature of the way he painted the, the, the colors, the palettes, just the tone of the whole piece. Like it's not sleeping, it's something else. And then you start asking questions like, well, why would he, why would he want to paint that? But I think there's something about that where it's like there's something in the depth of that moment of loss that I think actually throws you back into the moments of life. And that's not an unhealthy thing, but it's uh, it's what we do with uh, it's why people visit headstones at cemeteries. Right. It's not. Oh, my gosh, there's there's you know bones below this. It's always there's like a story that surrounds it. Hey, do you remember that time this guy did that really dumb thing and he thought it was uh, hilarious and nobody else did and now it is funny and we can talk about it, whatever. It's, it's why you have, you know, uh, celebrations at the end of life because there are things that, that death actually remind us about. And I think oftentimes if we approach it in a good way, it can remind us of life. So I wouldn't look on, you know, that, that painting of Camille as like necessarily a sad thing. I would say, here's, here's the here's the final resting place of a person who lived a life full of good, bad and indifferent things that are all wrapped up in this mortal thing that is now without that magic as we understand it. And there's something about that. That's actually like it it can be approached in a really fantastic way that doesn't lead to despair and doesn't lead to celebration, but leads to a right understanding of what we are and how we can live in between the eyes opening and the eyes closing. Well, this just, you know, the question I keep coming back to is 
how can this, um, I know personally, like the ways in which these kind of reflections have impacted not only my studio practice, but even the way I apply the paint and the charcoal, um, at first unconsciously. And then I kind of realized what I was doing over time that, you know, I, I guess my, my, my drawings are all about grief don't have any very seldom have subject matter that directly talk are about death but for me the way i was drawing the actual metaphor being communicated through the materials um was meant to sort of carry forward i think how i've come to see life differently after not only the passing of my father, but my grandmother, my grandfather, my papa, my uncle Rod, my uncle Brandon, my cousin Sabe. I mean, I've gone to a lot of funerals um, over the past few years, and and I and I think back on like you know like the show I was talking about earlier that Michael Pierce put together, and. You know, I think we've uh, touched on something profoundly important, and I'm just wondering, is to use y'all's terms, as makers, you know, as makers, like, how should, how can, uh, how should, you know, this, uh, th these kind of reflections inform not only our studio practice, but, um, the context in which we present like i know i did a painting that um i was thinking about in preparation of this of my uncle rod uh where he's smiling but he's also like clearly in a hospital gown and um this was sort of towards the beginning of the end for him and i felt bad because it's he looks he looks frail in it and that being a person who is in a wheelchair for most of his life, that's not how we want it to be represented. But at the same time, I felt like there was an enduring strength of character and a uh, kind of a, a, his choosing love, choosing joy, choosing happiness um, all through his life, despite his physical limitations and you know he told me uh you know a week before he died he said make sure when you talk about me that you always tell your friends that i did not to feel sorry for me because i didn't miss out on anything hmm. you know he's like i did more from a wheelchair than most able-bodied people do their entire life and um from the number of stories he has about all the beautiful women he's slept with i'd say that's probably true <laughs> um but uh you know, I wanted in that painting to, I feel like, because you, you fall into a trap as soon as you start saying, like you said, you don't want to leave anything off the table. Mm -hmm. And when I did that portrait of him, that was my concern was, I don't want to leave anything off the table. I don't want him to look like this. I don't want to ignore his suffering, but I don't want to ignore his like joy and charm either and how... And ever since I did that painting, that's been something I try to hold myself accountable to is how can I hold as much of it 
in one image as I can. Like, how can you hold things that we, that we often conceptualize as being oppositional, but that we, but in our experience come as a whole? And how can you keep those things whole in the artwork? Because I feel like that's the only kind of art that um, does real good for people. Um, but I don't know. I'm just, I'm just kind of no, thinking yeah. out loud and, and I, and I just, I, I, you know, really want to hear what you guys think about how should awareness well, of death. Yeah. It's know. funny. I'm, I'm working on a book and one of the, the, the center pivot point of the book, uh, pivots to a second half, which is called how then shall we make in light of everything? How then shall we proceed essentially or how then shall we make so it's funny like that's that's literally a middle mm-hmm. point in a book that i'm working on writing um you is know is this the announcement i haven't heard this before yeah yeah it's quiet oh yeah, it's, it's not quiet no it's more quiet. it's been it's actually like a 10 year <laughs> in the making but that's just i won't oh give you, my i won't God. give you the title but I, I will i will at least give you a chapter so i give you a chapter okay he knows about it um got a little, yeah little, teams little, teams little, know things trip yeah. right there it's know. slow slow going because i don't got a sabbatical and i got mm-hmm to feed my family. So, but, um, mm-hmm. the, uh, so, so just to say like, to kind of like say like, I think that's like, that would be the rethink, right? Like that would be like mm-hmm. part of it is like in light of all of these things, what do we do? How do we do it? Yeah. So I think we should get to that. But I think if we can, like, um, you brought up a painting, I don't know. And, and so like, maybe we can like, uh, make some plot points through, through visual representation to kind of frame this discussion a little bit. Yeah. So, th- so if I could, I just want to bring up a couple of paintings to me, that um, so there's one is by one of my professors Stephen Kaltenbach and it's called a portrait of my father and it's worth looking up and it's worth zooming in it's a huge painting it's fantastic. and it's an image shortly be- like shortly before the last breath passed out of his his life and you got to see the painting and you got to see what he did in the interior of the painting uh, so it, it when you it's a very realistically rendered painting and as you get close there's these like strange hallucinogenic constellation pieces that precipitate out of the form as you get closer so your whole experience of what's happening is the the image disappears and this precipitating color pulses out of the canvas depending on how your your proximity to the death if you will and in some ways i think it's one it's one of the most on um when you see it in, in person and you zoom in close and you have the experience so like zoom in close for him show him the so you see so you keep getting closer another visual system emerges and, and breaks down the figurative image. And so like you're, he's using art to deal with a deeply, uh, in my mind, metaphysical issue or some kind of transcendent issue that's happening. Um, that's one, that's one way that I think that's, that I, I would love to, the other one is, is I, Philip Gustin's work with uh, a lot of his pieces when they deal with um, shoes as a metaphor for souls of, uh, the souls of shoes as a, as a uh, stand in for uh, people's souls and lives lost and especially uh, there's one with him and I forget the name of it right now but it's it's him and his wife in bed and they're intimately together and it's just the souls it's all that's left it's like bones there's nothing else there's a blanket and, and that makes me think about rehearsing this every time you go to bed because at some point you have to fall asleep you cannot you're not um, yeah you yeah. cannot couple um, in bed yeah that's him and his wife. And so, so at some point you have to go to sleep. Yeah. There's too much to say about that. Um, and then, and, and then there's, um, so just kind of creating some plot points. There's uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat's riding with death. Yeah. Uh, it's just bare bones and a skeleton in him. It's one of the most, it's like one of his last paintings. 
and it's pretty blank. Um, and then there's, um, I have an image of it actually. Uh, um, Nikolai G this is like one of my f- favorite paintings. Um, uh, let me see. I took a picture of it cause it's kind of, um, you have to see it. In, you mean you have to see it, see it, the color, the, um, crucifixion. Yeah. Um, you know, and like, as juxtaposing that against these others that, that I, um, that are painted in different ways that deal with the, you know, they deal with the, uh, subject of, of, um, death and life in different ways, you mm-hmm. know, but, um, but those are like these plot points of work that if I think about those zones, they're all talking about these really complex ideas mm-hmm. that are commingling. Like how is all this together? Um, and I've heard in Frank Stella's, I don't know, Frank Stella's book called working space. He gets into some interesting stuff with, the. Uh, the crucifixion stuff, but, um, yeah. 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 I, I had a, a Rembrandt etching was one that I picked out with, uh, descent from the cross, not the painting, but the etching, I think the etching is more interesting than the painting. Um, and the thing about that, that kind of struck me is that you have this moment. So usually when you traditionally see the crucifix, it's very much like, you know, in, in the, in the larger moment of proceeding toward death, but this was the descent from the cross. So it was all the people around pulling the body down. Um, and it's just this kind of realization of uh, like that, that we like to think that life ends when we end, but the other people left are still going on with life. Yeah. That's, that's so a- there's this whole group of people who are taking part in something that the central figure of is not like there in mm-hmm. the sense that we understand existence. Right. So that so that that figure of the Christ is not like there's nothing there. Mm-hmm. It's just the body, but yet everybody is still having to go on with their lives mm-hmm. and do their things. And the the fact that that we are terrified of death, but in some ways we are the least likely to be impacted by death, in the sense that we don't have to deal with it after we die. Mm-hmm. That the people around us have to deal with it. Mm-hmm. They're left with the whole. Yeah. They're left with that kind of struggle and suffering. It's something that uh, after my my grandfather uh, died of COVID um, uh, earlier this year, and one of my friends, um, she had uh, not long before that lost her father, and uh, and I was just talking with her about all the stupid things people say to me after I lose someone in my family, mm. and and she basically kind of said what you said and I thought wow that is so true she is like she's this isn't about because people would say to me oh well you know he lived to 93 and oh well you know like he had a good life and oh yeah like and stuff and everything is if I'm supposed to like is if any of that changes my experience right like my experience is a human being who's been I've been very close to since I was four or five years old is no longer here and and my friend was just like, yeah, she says, like, what people don't get is all the ceremony and the consoling and everything like that is for the people who are still alive suffering, mm-hmm. you know, and, yeah, people, suffering the and people try to dismiss the suffering of those of us who are still here yeah. by speaking to the experience of the person who died. And it's like you're missing the point. Like you it's like you don't understand grief enough 
uh, to understand who is it that actually needs the consoling, you know? Yeah. It's not, it's not the body there at the service. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the, this other piece I had was, uh, James Inser and it's, uh, the bad doctors. Um, and I kind of love the story of James Inser because when he was going, he was, as, as history tells it, he was kind of your, your stereotypical sort of lazy art student who the teachers are like, you could actually be really good. You're really fantastic at figure and color. And they're like, yeah, you're making these kind of, uh, disgusting figures. And he was like, uh, it's okay. But he spent most of his time with his paintings, kind of like picking out parts of society that he thought were a little overinflated. And so it's called the bad doctors. And apparently it's, it's actual doctors that were in, I think Belgium, um, that he named by name, um, who they were, but it's this, this depiction of these, these five doctors kind of like playing with the, the, the health and life of people. And all the while, like, it's weird because in a lot of painting we see, uh, we either see the death of something or we see death personified in a sense that is very like overbearing. That is very like, it takes everything. It, it makes everything dark, makes everything black. But here's this figure of death with its, with its sickle, just kind of like standing there in a white gown. And it's hard to tell because different times when I've looked at this painting, I'm not sure if death is presiding over what's happening, almost like directing the scene to be like, yes, do this, come to me. Or if death's like, hey, hey, whoa, you may be running a little too far fast <laughs> to, toward me. Um, maybe you should be slowing down and, and actually live in life because it's not your time yet. Meanwhile, these doctors have like these terrible objects and they're poking and prying at people and pulling things out of folks. But it was a, one of those things where it's like, as much as we avoid, we still live in a place and a time where a lot of the things we do kind of push us towards death, right? So you even think about people who do extreme sports. They're like, in that moment where I'm not sure if I'm going to make it is when I feel most alive. And it's like, in the moment that it could be precipitating yeah, I, death. Yeah, I watched this extreme <laughs> sport thing. I just saw a video where a guy falls from like this obscene mountaintop on purpose. Mm. And he winks at the guys because it's like, I know that yeah. something could go wrong. And that's the wink. Mm-hmm. And then the smile is the acknowledgement of, of like for the way that he's wired and he just like falls back, yeah, you know, and then somewhere at the, the bottom end he pulls the chute and he makes it or whatever. But, but it's like, but like I, <laughs> I, um, too cerebral. So that for me, it's not the way that I, I find like uh, solace right. in that discussion, but, but for him it is, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I can't, but it's another appeasement of death, right? Where it's yeah. like, uh, it's like, Oh, this, I'm, I'm putting it off. I know that it's not going to happen. Yeah. Right. And it's, it's sort of like bringing it to that precipice eclipses a lot of uh, subsidiary levels of suffering. It's kind of like if I can, if I can get to the mountaintop of this, then I, then it, it alters my perception of the way in which I, I may suffer otherwise. And so I can, I can domesticate suffering or subdue it into a, a lesser position in my life because yeah. I've, I've just braved this kind of epic moment of risk because mm-hmm. the whole risk aversion thing, you yeah. know, it's athletic um, cocaine. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, I think but with both those pieces, they struck me in different ways because it's uh, it's even when we're trying to not be a part of it, like if we say, like, oh, it's not really affecting me or no, that's not what I'm about. Like, we're still swimming in the waters of mm-hmm. the fact that we have we got limited time. Yeah, I don't know. We, we um, so we got to probably the close soon. I, I think um, the re well, shoot, man, well, you had something. Go I was going to say you look like a lot's on your mind, Ian. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I can, I, think, I see you're like, you got some thoughts. You're making a lot of faces. I thought it was just a cheesesteak. <laughs> <laughs> I handled those well. I have yeah, an iron gut. <laughs> you, 
You look good, by the way. Thank you. Yeah, we're glad you're here. I'm glad to be here. Well. Uh, yes, I did. <laughs> I will be back. Um, yeah, I don't know. This conversation, it just feels very relevant, especially the latter part of this conversation, to... I've known my grandparents my whole life. They're from Denmark, first-generation immigrants, so it makes me third. Uh, I mean, they risked everything to come to this country and build a life for themselves. And, I mean, uh, Mofa, Momo and Mofa, that's what they go by. It's Danish for mother's mother and mother's father. Um, I mean, best people I've ever met in my life. And I, it's, it's like... The prolonging of death that we're saying it's like the love of life and then also dealing with loss i'm just it's it's all kind of coming to a head i think very perhaps very soon uh with them and i've i mean there's been many nights that it's sort of just struck me uh that one day i wouldn't be able to call them they're in north carolina and uh i don't know i think in some sense it's like very good to be having this conversation because it, it i keep thinking of them like my grandma does dialysis three four times a week hmm. it's i mean it's wild you just she's got this like implant thing yeah. in her arm and she like puts my hand on it and i can feel as this little machine her blood passes through as to help filter it's just mm-hmm. it's wild my grandpa's he's had a couple strokes and he's completely just about lost his hearing and it's like in that prolonging of death it's like they're still around, mm-hmm. which is um, incredible. I mean, it's a some sense a medical miracle of science that my grandma's still here, that uh, my grandpa's been helped in the countless ways that he has. Um, at the same time, it's like they're they're literally taking on new forms of suffering that they never saw for themselves in order to still be here. And but they, what is most amazing about every time I talk to them, like I don't think there's a conversation that Mofa doesn't say, he's like, yep, I'm going to croak any one of these days now. And it's like, sort of just like, (laughs) it was like a jovial acceptance of like, yeah, I'm going to die. And it's probably going to happen all of a sudden. Uh, And, but even my Momo, like she's so like chipper about it. Just like, oh yeah, this is what happens when you get old, you fall apart and then you die. And I'm just like, holy shit moment. Like you got to, that's like a lot to just take in, but they're, I don't know. They literally, like, I remember Thanksgivings with my grandpa, like sitting as far back as his chair leans as well. And he's just looking around the room and he has a look on his face of like, I did it, which is amazing. I mean, I would, you know, I think people dream about having that moment to look at your family and see your two daughters and they each have multiple children and have lived a life and have done so successfully here in America and they're able to provide for their family. Um, I don't know. I just, my mind keeps going to that. And in some sense, I brought up a lot of the, the celebration of life in order to not to dismiss death or suffering or, I mean, literally holding uh, somebody's child who, who died at 33 weeks. I mean, it's not to dismiss by any means as much as it is to just acknowledge just how precious life is and how much beauty and joy and even the suffering to be thankful in the times that it it tests us and makes us better people um hopefully ideally uh but just to acknowledge all of that and i mean i think that's probably the real use of conversations like this to really take it on the chin and understand that everyone that's around us one day no matter how cool or strong they are 
they're gonna pass yeah, away. Yeah, Kobe one Bryant day. died. You know what I mean? Kobe's like that's out. To say Kobe's yeah. out. Kobe's gone. Mamba out. Just all of a sudden. Just, so yeah, just thank like you, that. thank you for life. Thank you for you guys. I'm Chazelik, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's funny because, um, you know, like going back, you know, earlier, I was talking about people asking me, like, well, you know, who wants to buy these Miguel? You know, these paintings are are dark and stuff like that. And you know, yeah, I don't. I don't sell that much. Um, well, that's not true. Uh, my last two shows at Erickson were gallery. I did really well. Um, that's great. So, nice. and, and I feel extremely fortunate and even I, I think kind of surprised. Um, but you know, selling and not selling and stuff is such a relative statement. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm doing well and uh, have no complaints and I'm very happy on that front. Uh, but, but more than making sales, what has really um, stood out to me is something that my wife pointed out. She said, Miguel, she says, she says every single show you've been in since I've known you, like in Richmond, um, where you've had a piece that deals with any of these topics, like somebody ends up crying in the gallery and coming up to you and talking with you about how much the work means yeah. and and I thought about it and I was like yeah like people do cry at my openings and I was thinking like I was thinking like I feel good that my work has provided you know a release for those people and that like you know I've had people who you know the portrait I did of my uncle in the hospital like, you know, I had a guy who said, I know that expression. Like, I know this scene. Like, my dad's been in the hospital. And, and this is a total stranger. I've never saw the guy before or after. But just being able to meet on that level through mm-hmm. art. And being able to meet, I think, all of us, especially in this second half of this conversation, I think all of us are in that shared um, space that is so important. Um, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't quite have the words to describe how I feel right now. Um, especially after you told, you know, shared with us about, you know, those children dying. And I just think about those parents and I'm just like, Oh my God, like, like, how do you come back from that? You know, it's, um, it's just so overwhelming, but there's a, a, I don't want to say catharsis. I don't know what to call it, but there's just, there's just something that feels so right about speaking about it, um, Mm. in art and in conversation, like the one we're having today. And, um, yeah, I mean, I hope, I don't, I hope that people out there, listening to this podcast um that maybe it pushes them this conversation pushes them in the direction of having these kind of conversations with people in their Mm -hmm. own circle in their own community and um yeah because because it is heavy Mm -hmm. you know um i find myself consciously trying to ignore the fact that there's people in my family getting older yeah Yeah. especially people that i have difficult relationships with Mm-hmm. You know, because because 
all of my feelings, any feelings of resentment and anger and stuff like that, if I, if I just remind myself, they're not going to be here mm -hmm. forever. I reveal to myself my own pettiness. Mm -hmm. And then it's sort of an, as an act of ego preservation, I push it away mm -hmm. so I can hang on to this identity and this relationship that I've crafted through my own pettiness. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I catch myself doing it over and over again. And, um, and it's, it's really hard. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to overcome that. It's really, yeah, it's, it's super hard. It it's, it's hard to be the person that you should be to your yes. family and friends. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. hundred percent. Hey, that's, could, that's a whole other series of maybe that we, we may have to like, um, could, um, could I, could I, could I end it on a weird note? Could we, I mean, could we, why, why we'll, be we'll, different now? Cause I think we'll actually have to have another conversation that we maybe can't actually do today. Yeah. yeah. But if I could, okay. So this is going to make y'all feel uncomfortable possibly. So, um, so, but that painting, the painting of the, the Christ painting. Mm -hmm. So could I, could I just give like a, a weird, could I talk theologically for two seconds just to say, to, to talk about this? Is that okay? It's your podcast. It's man. our podcast. I know. Yeah, you guys. So you, you're, you'll you hate me. You invited us here. Oh, let me, okay. So let, let's just pretend. <laughs> like, like, let's just, can I just use, I, I want to just like, okay. So, because I, I want to use a framework to talk about that painting really fast. And I'm going to say some wild crap. And it's going to seem really weird and uncomfortable. But it's just so that we can sit on making sense of all of this. Well, don't shoot just, just rip the bandaid off. Just, just What's that? Just rip okay. the bandaid. <laughs> okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to... Okay, so look it. So ah. I showed you all that painting. By the way, any of the paintings that anybody's mentioned, we want to mm -hmm. put them all together on, a, um, yeah, yeah. on the website. So, okay. So um, we could talk about this in, in a million different belief systems. We really can. That's, I would love to actually do that. Um, so, but take that cross painting. And it's because it kind of like it deals with a whole bunch of these categories. And so, so, um, so even if you're not religious and you're listening or, you know, whatever, just consider the ex the, the categories. Okay. So what is a human? It's our ontological category. So we're humans. We're, we're all of the things that we're talking about and we're wrestling with this really difficult situation. So when I look at the power of a work of art and I look at these different systems, Philip Gustin's was like dealing with like Nazi Germany. I mean, he was dealing with like bodies being buried, the power of art, um, Jean-Michel Basquiat was dealing with the isolation, right? Like that you talked about, I mean, like the way he was exploited mm -hmm. and his, his absolute awareness of where it was headed. And if you look at that painting, you see it, it's like, dude, it's just me and death now. Like, it's just me and death. Like you could see. Um, and when I look at Kaltenbach's work, he spent seven years painting the moment his father died. Seven years. Gosh. That was a seven year painting to, to, to deal with what he experienced watching his father breathe his last breath. Every one of those paintings that uh, come up and, you know, are, are dealing with the gravity of something. And so in the cross painting, I think it's interesting from, so, you know, not to talk about whether I believe it or not, but just to say that in the cross painting, that's the Christ, right? You can, it's unavoidable to deal with it, but what is, so what was the Christ? Well, the Christ was supposed to be um, God in the flesh. And so what is God? Well, one way of talking about God in this particular belief system is to say that God is the greatest conceivable being. And so in this particular belief system, the greatest conceivable being, being is a uh, superlative triplicate consciousness uh, ceaselessly existing in a mutual state of adoration. So that's the Trinity. It's three persons, one God, or three persons, one God is in the way that we're many persons, one humanity. So this particular being speaks reality into existence and it says that somehow 
this spoken reality, you know, like Genesis kind of thing is like uh, a poem or a song that's present tense being upheld by these spoken words. And out of the overflow of the love of that community, humanity is created with a purpose to be artists, to be designers, to be makers, to be singers. That's the idea. And we are tempted by a dragon. And so the idea is that this dragon comes in, tempts, and uh, death happens, which is separation or the loss of the face of the one you love, which is God and humanity relating to each other. This is, this is all culminating in this image. So, so somehow the artist, that is the Christ, who has spoken all, all reality into existence, enters into the picture to rescue the one that can't rescue themselves and exchanges life for death. So it takes death in order to actually offer life. And so you see this exchange happening. And I think, um, I, I think that's an interesting thing because I think a lot of us would want to, how many people have said I would exchange my life for theirs if they could live a little bit longer? Mm-hmm. Like we, we kick around these kinds of ideas um, we talk about the suffering artist and then there's this picture of, you know, if, if you believe it, it's the, it's the cosmic artist willing to suffer for his art, um, in a way, which is interesting thought provocative. Um, there's this idea of, uh, the emptying out of the, the physical all the way to the, the point of death, which is to lose the face. Reason why I said that is like in this, in this framework, if the, in the Trinitarian framework, the Christ loses the face of the spirit and the father undergoes a change in order undergoes a a forever separation for something, something else to be brought in uh, like a new life to be brought in. So there's this kind of strange exchange. And I feel like when we're talking about funerals, we're on this side of that and we don't really have a way to exchange to be on the other side of, of the conversation. Like we, we don't, who comes, who comes, uh, who comes from death and says, Hey, um, join us. Cause you had mentioned, someone mentioned a sci-fi where everybody kills themselves because they're told there's an afterlife mm-hmm. and that they have assurances of it. That's interesting that, that, that exists. I mean, like these are themes that have been dealt with forever. So, so in this belief system, this person, um, conquers death by resurrecting, by showing back up and saying, Hey, I took care of it. Cause I'm the one that spoke it all into existence. You can't, but I can tell you about it. And I feel like we ebb between that kind of desire and the total opposite, which is to say like, there is nothing. Mm -hmm. And I want to be absolved completely from it into a euphoric state of at best, maybe like a shared consciousness where there's no physicality. And what I'm interested in, I guess, is I feel like those are two extreme polarities Mm -hmm. that are trying, that have framed a lot of Western thought actually. Eastern and Western thought actually like it's unavoidable. If you look at art history, it's a, it's framed a, a great deal of our discussion. And the middle point a lot of times for me is, is materialism. Like you, you kind of get to the place where we can say, well, we can at least agree on materialism. Mm-hmm. And so in the, in the framing of this discussion, there's these categories that are at play like personhood, um, <clears throat> transcendence. Is there anything that upholds this, you know, or, or is this happening in this moment only? Like we have, we were talking about it earlier. Like, is there a, a multiverse? You know, I was, we were talking earlier about off camera about like, what if you died and you're actually just in a, another trajectory. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like we're always trying to deal with these conversations. And I think sometimes, and I just gave like a really strange and super quick idea 
<clears throat> or a theological idea about that particular painting that pertains to the wrestling of a lot of paintings that kicked off a lot of painting application, like divinity and humanity, thickness over lean, uh, brightness over uh, viscosity and physicalness. Like that gesture, a lot of that came from trying to reconcile this really incredible incarnational theological idea, humanity and, and the divine overlapping or intersecting into one, one thing. And, and that's impacted a whole, a whole host of like art history and the way we think about it. Um, I was just going to say, I really think that that's the, that's what painting is so good at is exactly. I always find that painting, I think is always at its best when it rides the line between uh, the tangible and the intangible 100%. because, because of the na- because of the dual nature of painting itself, that it is simultaneously light and physical substance. Yep. It's both completely ephemeral and sculptural. Yep. And so I think I think uh, painting just naturally lends itself as the most direct and effective uh, metaphor for speaking mm-hmm. to those kinds of concerns. Whereas I think like music exists in a place that's you know very much you know kind of in the in the you know it's ephemeral. Yes. You that's know, right. and I feel like sculpture is very much like bodily and physical. And while painting cannot do what either one can do in either direction, the strength of painting is that it's, is, is that it it acts as this mediator. That's exactly right. And, And so like that's, so here's what I'm saying. You were able to get to that. Like if you read Stella's book, he talks about the crucifixion and he talks about different regions of the world trying to wrestle with this profound theological issue and that the what he was calling and he's not saying there were failings the way the artist felt is the failings to achieve this complete picture of god being fully man and suffering but also joyous like these seeming intersecting of paradoxes being both divine and human created these these um leanings in in paintings from different regions and these techniques and these applications that became offshoots that then became their own kind of ways of making because painting seems to be uh, one of the be- like one of the most enduring ways to deal with this this kind of complex intersection this like you said like a kind of duality uh, or a both end if you will mm-hmm. and um, in all the paintings that I, I pointed to in some way are are are, are doing exactly that and um, the theological framework makes it easier to kind of actually begin to talk about it sometimes for me because um, whether, whether one agrees or not, um, oftentimes we don't have enough categorical framework to, um, to really begin to flesh out the conversation, not, not in agreement with it, but to even make the point that you're making, which I've heard you made before, so I know that you can make it without this conversation, but a lot of us can't, or a lot of us don't realize it yet because we haven't quite put it together. Um, so I don't know. I mean, there's, there's a, there's a bunch, there's just, there's so much to say. Like if you walk through rich traditions of systems, like, like the way bodies are embalmed and buried with all their stuff, like, mm-hmm. like we haven't even touched on the nature of the artifacts that accord with that yeah. or the tombs that exist or, and, and you have these systems that have existed for uh, a significant amount of time that produce a kind of realm of artifacts and ways of dealing with this issue. And, um, you know, uh, and they come out of their own theological traditions, their own polytheistic or their own. I mean, when you look at Greek culture, dude, you're dealing with amplified expressions of humanity 
where, where, where they projected longings onto these particular entities in order to, to bring about certain realities, like to incarnate certain realities in their immediate experience. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I think we are in danger because we're, um, almost becoming barbarous in our, in, um, in, in, inarticulate and we're losing access to structures and systems and ways of thinking that can, uh, create some breathing room in a discussion about, uh, um, issues such as, as death and the way that uh, actually coming back to the last episode, Miguel, you said that, uh, sometimes the arts are the thing that actually helps us deal with these issues the most. And we have this magnanimous legacy of it. Like you're pointing to, uh, you know, uh, cities that, um, have whole systems and are built on, on rich traditions that, uh, you don't arrive at a, a kind of joy that you're talking about overnight. Um, no, you got to build it for generations, it. tradition, yes, culture, and the yeah. whole thing, generational yeah. towards an end. Yeah. You know, and speaking about death, ironically, I don't think this conversation will ever die. Yeah. Ironically. <laughs> 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 it's a weird way to end, but I, I, if anything, it's to kick the door open a little harder and say, like, I think there's actually, I actually don't even think we, we got to all of it. I think it's like, um, I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, there's a lot there. I'd be, I'd be happy to, if you wanted us back, I'd do be part three yeah i'd be happy to uh Death start from three. from fresh yeah no chili cheesesteaks i think we need a part three are you with me i think we need a part three yeah i'm down yeah, okay maybe we're doing we part need three. some spirits next time yeah we'll bring some spirits in i'll bring Whoop. i'll bring the spirit of uh trump kenobi it's <laughs> a bad joke about a, a video i showed the guys earlier but maybe we can close here and and we're going to come back for a part three because yeah. i think we uh uh, it's truly that we're only just scratching the surface. I actually think yes. it'd be great to look at some of these artworks. Maybe you all that are listening can find some pieces that you think it could be musical pieces as well. Yeah. I, I'd be curious Ooh. to know if you guys have yeah. any, um, for later, if you have any musical pieces that mm -hmm. we can listen to prior to the next recording. That'd be great. Um, yeah. I would love that if listeners sent in any work of art yep. or like, I know that the only thing that really helped me in like my darkest periods of grief was poetry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I would love to see what people, yeah, where people land with this. Yeah. Cause I think we got our, I think poetry is, there's so much to be said about that. Yeah. So, um, so I think we're only just getting going on this rethink, <laughs> um, actually, and it may turn into a third, maybe a fourth episode, we'll um, an epic goes. four person, uh, four part series. Oh my God. Oh my goodness. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. So well, on that note. Yeah. So another cliffhanger, I guess. Yeah. Another cliffhanger um, with Dr. Snacks Mel. <laughs> but yeah, we, uh, we do love y'all. You are a fantastic audience and we will catch you next time. Stay smelling snacky. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You've been listening to Shaco Art Speak, a production of Shaco Art Space. We are an independent nonprofit art gallery in Richmond, Virginia. We can be found online at shacoartspace.com and in real life, an historic Shaco bottle.